Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. So we're turning tonight to the book of Colossians, to chapter 3. I'll just note that uh, after tonight, we'll be breaking from the book of Colossians to focus on our Advent theme for the next several Sunday evenings, and then we'll return to the book of Colossians uh, in January. But this is a perfect place for us to wrap up what we have been talking about, because tonight we conclude this section in which uh, Paul has been talking about our union with Christ and the significance of it. Paul has uh, argued, uh, of course, you know, when we think about union with Christ, everything in this letter flows from it, but we really kind of come to the close of the thought here. As Paul's argued, by faith we have been united to Christ, so that we have died with him to the world and to our old self, with its sinful desires, and we've been raised with him to new life. And as a result, Paul calls us to set our minds on things above where Christ is. He calls us to put off our old man with its sinful desires and to put on the new man, which is being renewed in Christ's image. And now Paul concludes by coming back to Christ, again, as the motivation and the guide for all that we do. And so we're looking at just two short verses tonight. Colossians chapter 3. Would you join me as we read just verses 16 and 17? This is the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Father, I pray that You would be with us tonight as we look at these verses. I pray that You would magnify Christ before our eyes, the One who has died in our place and risen again and is now at Your right hand, the One who has washed us with His blood. May we be in awe of Him tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In many ways, if you were not in the midst of a series through a particular book in the Bible, there's a good chance you might choose this passage for Thanksgiving weekend. It's hard to imagine verses that would more perfectly tie in with the theme of giving thanks. And Paul mentions thankfulness three times in three verses here. If you looked back up to verse 15, where we ended last week, you'll see he ended verse 15 after uh, calling them to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts in one body. He said, and be thankful. And now he says to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing in all wisdom and singing together with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then he concludes, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And the only problem with preaching this text on Thanksgiving weekend is that we might be tempted to reduce 
these verses in Colossians to another pithy saying about thanksgiving. I mean, we've been surrounded by pithy sayings throughout the week about giving thanks. At least if you're into Thanksgiving as a holiday, you might have uh, watched the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving movie and heard Charlie Brown say, what if today we just try to be grateful for everything? Oh, good old Charlie Brown. Or maybe, maybe you've seen the, the quote by author Robert Lintner. I've seen this a number of places uh, in recent weeks. Thanksgiving was never meant to be shut up into a single day. Very true. Or, or maybe G.K. Chesterton, a great Christian author, Chesterton with a, a gift for words said, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. And so we've got these sayings for Thanksgiving. They're all good. They're, they're well-taken sayings. But the danger is that we might see do everything in the name of Jesus giving thanks to God as another one of these seasonal encouragements to be thankful for everything. It is an encouragement to be thankful for everything, but it is so much more than that. I think we could imagine what the Colossians themselves might have been thinking at the end of verse 15. Would you just do a quick mental review with me of what Paul has asked of the Colossians over the last 15 verses? He's just gone over a list of sins to be put off. He's gone over a list of holiness to be put on. And after verses 5 through 11 in the the list of sins to be put off and verses 12 to 15 in the virtues of godliness to be put on, might they be thinking, I long for this character in Christ, but how am I supposed to do this? How do I put off all of these sins? How do we put on this character of godliness? My flesh is still putting up quite a fight. A battle is still raging. How do I grow in this holiness? And just trying harder certainly seems insufficient for an answer. So what do I do? And I think that Paul gives us the answer to that question here in these verses of 16 and 17. Paul gives us a twofold battle strategy, if you will, for how these verses become embedded and flow out of our lives. Let the word of Christ dwell among you and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Giving thanks here is not so much about holiday spirit, it's about a war strategy, a battle strategy against sin and to hold on and grasp the character of Christ. That's what I hope we see tonight the role of giving thanks and letting the word of Christ dwell among us in these verses. So I'm arguing for a twofold battle strategy tonight. First comes in verse 16. Let's look at that one first. Verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, maybe the first question in your minds is the first question that was in my mind when I started looking at this passage this week. And the question that I was asking is, what exactly is the word of Christ? And is the word of Christ something different than or distinct from the word of God? Or how is Paul using it here? On the one hand, of course, Christ's words are God's words. And all that Christ said and did were in fulfillment of God's words. So we should not draw a hard line or distinction between the two at all. However, I do think there is a specific focus or emphasis 
when we read the Word of Christ. I was struck in the Gospel of John this week, John chapter 15, verse 3. Jesus is talking to his disciples there on the night as he was being uh, betrayed, before he was betrayed there, and he said to his disciples, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Not the words, but the word that I have spoken to you. Christ talks about his word here, and the word of Christ appears to specifically refer to the message of the gospel that Jesus announced. And so if I might, if I might put it this way, I would argue the word of Christ is not something different than the Scriptures, but it is the Scriptures as they point to Christ. It is the message of salvation announced by Christ in fulfillment of the Scriptures. So Jesus shows up and he says, I have come. I'm the heir of David. I am the fulfillment of the prophets. I am the seed of Eve sent to crush the serpent. So repent and believe, turn and follow me in faith that we might find life in him. The word of Christ is the word of the gospel that Christ proclaims as the fulfillment of all the scriptures. And it is the word that we find hope and life in. And Paul says that we are to let this word of Christ dwell in us. So it is the scriptures, yes, the scriptures with the focus on Jesus Christ as he announces himself to his people. And Paul says that this word of Christ is to dwell in us. That is, it is to take up residence in us. Isn't that a great image? To dwell is the image of a house. It is the image of something living in our hearts or minds. The image that we are occupied by the word of Christ. All of, their, all of the scriptures and their fulfillment in Christ and the hope of that good news should be living in us. Not just a little bit, but fully, richly, so that all the riches of the word of Christ would lead to spiritual abundance in us. And I, I want to maybe just pause for a second and, and let the significance of a resident living in a home sink in for us. Can you imagine a situation where a man maybe travels to a particular city for business, and maybe he even has to travel to that city for business one day every week, and maybe he has a friend, and the friend says, look, you're going to have to travel here one day out of every week. You don't want to get a hotel room all this time, but you're not going to buy a house. You can just stay with me that one day each week. And the question is, Would we say that that friend's house was his home? Would we say that his dwelling and his residence was in that friend's house? The answer is no. He's a visitor there, but that's not his home. And if I could argue, neither does the Word of God dwell in us or take up a residence in our hearts if we just hear it once a week. And then that's it till next week. No, it is to live in us. We are to be occupied by it. The word of Christ is to take residence in our hearts. I think there's a a particularly interesting parallel here as we talk about the word of Christ dwelling in us. When we think about what does it mean for the word of Christ, all of the scriptures as they point to Christ dwelling in us, being in our hearts, on our minds, what what is the impact of that on our lives? If you have your Bibles with you, um, would you flip over just two epistles to Ephesians, to the book of Ephesians. This also 
another letter that Paul wrote, uh, this uh, one to Ephesus. If you study Ephesians and Colossians, you'll notice that there are a number of parallels between these letters as Paul was saying some similar things to the two churches. But would you look at chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and would you read with me verses 18 through 20? Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. Paul says this to the Ephesians. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that what Paul writes here in this passage is very much parallel to what we read in Colossians. Both talk about the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the Lord in your heart. Both talk about giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus. But do you notice that the beginning phrase is slightly different? In Colossians, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In Ephesians, it says, be filled with the Spirit. And I think as we look at the parallels here, what we conclude is that Paul is drawing a very close connection between what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and what it means for the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. The two are parallel spiritual realities. And this, of course, should make perfect sense to us. Because Jesus, when he was still on earth with his disciples in John 14, 26, said that the Helper the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And because when we believe the word of Christ, Christ promises to send the Spirit to dwell in us, and both the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the word of Christ represent our communion with Christ. They represent our fellowship with Him as His Word and His Spirit fills us and we walk in fellowship with Him. And I think this is why John MacArthur, uh, in his uh, commentary when he's writing on these passages, he says, being filled with the Holy Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly are the same spiritual reality viewed from two sides of one coin. He said to be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by His Word and to have the Word dwelling richly in you is to be controlled by His Spirit. And so I want us to to see here that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some esoteric experience. It is to have the Word of Christ living and dwelling in you and controlling you and leading you and guiding you and filling you as you fellowship with the Lord in in the Holy Spirit around His Word that He has said to you. But if we want to continue the logic of Scripture here, I'm saying that this is a battle strategy. I'm saying that to let the Word of God, or the Word of Christ dwell in you, to be filled with the Spirit is a battle strategy. And I think if we, if we just follow Scripture, being filled with the Holy Spirit is a means of killing sin and growing in righteousness. This is Paul's point in, in the whole chapter, really, of, of Galatians chapter 5, when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. As, as we're full of the Spirit and the Spirit kills sin and produces godliness in us. Specifically, Paul says in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the Spirit and the flesh are at war with one another. See, to be filled with the Spirit by letting the Word of Christ dwell in us is 
part of, a key to what Paul is telling us for how we put all of Colossians 3 into practice. It's how we see sin die and righteousness come alive as fruit in our lives. And so battle strategy number one for us is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. For by so doing, the Holy Spirit is filling you and producing fruit in you, the fruit of righteousness that Paul has just talked about here in this chapter in Colossians. Now, maybe you say, okay, well, that's all very well and good, but how exactly do I do that? You've said, let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. What does that look like? How do we do that? Well, Paul is not suggesting that we hold ourselves up by, our, uh, by ourselves with, with our Bibles, although being with the Scriptures constantly is one of the keys. But I want you to notice back in Colossians 3, if you're back there in Colossians 3.16, he says, to let the Word of Christ dwell in you, and that you is plural. It's a corporate you. Uh, it's a you of the body. And then he tells us how to do it. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Those are the two things that Paul tells us, the two ways that we will let the Word of Christ dwell richly in us. Teaching, of course, is the positive side of sharing the Word of Christ, building one another up in the knowledge of Christ as we speak the Word to one another, the comfort of the gospel to one another admonishing would be the negative side of sharing the word of Christ in the sense of speaking to each other the warnings of Christ. If we depart from him or from his word, warnings about false teachings and what to avoid. And so we are supposed to teach and we are supposed to admonish and we are to do it with all wisdom. Certainly preaching the word is a key part of this. As we preach the Word and listen to the preaching of the Word together, there's a, a mutual building up of the body. But so, so is there as we gather together and dwell together as believers, as we share with one another lessons and encouragements from the Word with one another. And I think Paul's, Paul's encouragement here is that our fellowship as God's people ought to be defined by a teaching and an admonishing and a sharing the Word of Christ together. The Word of Christ should be the key ingredient in our fellowship. And the Word is to dwell among us in our singing. Now, if you are uh, interested in and have looked into uh, a verse like this, you know that there's been plenty of debate over uh, the centuries, over what exactly psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs mean and imply. Uh, I won't go into uh, all of the different background here, but I take this verse to mean that psalms refer likely to the Old Testament psalms themselves, that hymns are a particular type of song, particularly one that gives, is focused on giving praise to God, and that spiritual songs are musical expressions of spiritual truths uh, rooted in the truths of Scripture. And so you have different categories of singing, uh, of praise to God here uh, that are given I think we see examples even in the New Testament, both of referring to psalms, but also what seem likely to be early musical expressions or early hymns of praise to Christ. But a few things I think should stand out to us about our singing. 
we get together every Sunday, maybe morning and evening, and we sing hymns together and psalms together and spiritual songs together. But notice a couple things about this. First, the music that we sing together as a church should not merely be an emotional expression. It may well be an expression that is emotional when we talk about Christ and who He is and what He's done for us, but it's not merely an emotional expression. Our singing should be teaching us something because our singing is one of the ways that the Word of Christ dwells in us. And so when we sing, it's not like, well, okay, we kind of get the juices flowing by getting up and singing. Well, no, singing, just like prayer and preaching, is another way in which the Word of Christ dwells among us. We are very literally singing to one another the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're built up by that. And so the Word of Christ dwells among us, and we are taught by and encouraged together as we sing these truths. So that's the first thing to notice. But the second thing to notice is even as I say that, notice, as Paul makes very clear here, that our singing is not primarily done towards each other. Our singing is still primarily done to God. Paul says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so the, the orientation of our hearts and our minds is Godward. And it is as we look Godward together that we are encouraged and built up by these truths. So God is the object of our singing, and our singing should spring forth from and be inspired by our thankfulness to the Lord. And so here in Colossians 3.16, we find this God-oriented worship driven by and brought forth from our thankfulness for all that He has done for us. A God-oriented worship that's done together so that the Word of Christ occupies us and dwells in us richly with the presence of the Holy Spirit filling us so that together our focus is above where Christ is. And as that takes place together, as God's people, we have battle strategy number one. As the Holy Spirit fills us and continues to remake us and to renew us in the knowledge of our Creator so that we are enabled more and more to put off the old man and its sinful desires and put on the new man with the fruits of the Spirit living in us. That's battle strategy number one. Then we come to verse 17. In verse 17, strategy number two. This verse, in some ways, is a summary of everything Paul has already said. It's hard really to uh, pull verse 17 out of the context of everything that's gone before. But As Paul writes, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's actually returning to a theme that shows up across his writings, and that is that thankfulness, giving thanks, is a particular means of countering sin and drawing near to the Lord. That's what I want us to see here. As we look at this verse, note that Paul is stacking up words on top of each other to emphasize that this verse refers to everything. It is comprehensive. If you wanted to literally translate verse 17, you could literally translate it this way. Every single thing, whatever it is, 
in everything, do all things, word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so if you missed that, it's everything. All things, whatever it is, word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there's no exceptions here. Whether we're talking about thoughts, words, or deeds, whether we're talking about sacred or secular, whether we're talking about school, home, or church or work, whether we're talking about friends uh, or family, whether we're talking about fellow believers or unbelievers, whether you name the category, Paul's talking about it here in verse 17. What does it mean to do everything, whatever it is, in the name of the Lord Jesus? I love the way one commentator put it. He wrote, to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus means to live and act as those who bear his name. It means to act as those for whom he is Lord, eager to live worthy of him. But this, is, this is not a crushing weight of obligation. This isn't about, okay, you put on the uniform, so now you have 516 things that you better do. Because Paul immediately says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, the overwhelming, all-consuming thought is that this is the greatest privilege I could ever imagine. That Jesus, the Son of God, the preeminent and all-glorious one, the eternal one, one with God the Father through whom all things were created, whom God has set over all creation as king and head of his church, that one has given himself for me and now calls me to put on his name and to bear his name. How is that possible? How is that possible for me, a sinner, and a sinner who's shown his colors as a sinner all too frequently? A mere human without anything to impress the God of the universe and plenty of reasons not to impress him as my sin is made known. How is it that I could be given this privilege? So the thought is not, oh boy, oh boy, I'm following Jesus. What do I have to do now? No, the thought is, thanks be to God. What an honor. Now may I live worthy of you. I know we have uh, some... uh, Pittsburgh backgrounds amongst our congregation here. So if you're a a Pittsburgh guy uh, or gal, you know the name of Roberto Clemente, probably one of the greatest baseball players to ever play the game of baseball. He was a, a Puerto Rican by birth, and he loved the game of baseball. But you'll remember that Clemente came in just a few years after the color barrier was broken in baseball. It was no guarantee that he would have been able to play baseball in the major leagues. Well, one time Roberto Clemente was, was asked about what it was like to put on that Pittsburgh Pirates uniform. And Clemente responded and said, when I put on my uniform, I feel I am the proudest man on all the earth. Putting on that uniform represented something. He was part of a team representing a city, and he didn't sigh and say, well, I've been given this uniform. I guess I have to go out and try to hit home runs today. No, he was filled every time with the privilege and the joy of getting to play the game he loved in a league that he would not have been able to do many years before. 
And he longed to play worthy of that privilege every time he put on that uniform. And I think that's just an eensy-weensy bitty picture of what it is like for us to do everything in the name of Jesus, to live and to act as those who bear the name of Jesus in everything we do, and to do so continually giving thanks to God the Father through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what a battle strategy this is against sin. I mean, just think about what giving thanks does. To give thanks to God through Christ immediately takes our eyes off of this world and puts them back on the God who has given us forgiveness and redemption through His Son. To give thanks expresses our dependence upon God. To give thanks acknowledges God as the source of every blessing we have. To give thanks expresses the joy and satisfaction we find in Christ. We can't be so caught up with this world and be giving thanks and praise to God for what He's done for us in Christ at the same time. So no wonder Paul talks about thankfulness three times in these last three verses. Give thanks to Him. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Give thanks to God the Father through Him. And I find it interesting that Paul actually comes back to thankfulness in multiple passages in his epistles when it comes to countering sins and anxieties in order to put our eyes back on Christ. You could probably think of some. But back in Ephesians chapter 5, again, there's a lot of parallels here. Ephesians chapter 5 talked about two sets of sins, although it mentioned others. Ephesians 5, but sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is what is to replace these crude talking, crude, joking, filthiness of tongue, sexual immorality, covetousness, thankfulness, Paul says, is to be the replacement of those sins. It's a battle strategy against them. Or I think also of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 talks about uh, the anxieties that fill us, the things that press on our hearts, and you know these verses well. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, how? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so as we have these different categories of anxieties and sins and things that Paul brings up, he comes back again and again to thanksgiving and thankfulness as the key counter to them, And I think this only makes sense. We have it again in Colossians 3. He comes to the end of putting off sin, putting on godliness, and says, and be thankful and sing with thankfulness. And in everything you do, give thanks to God the Father through him. Because thanks takes our eyes off this world and puts it firmly back on our Lord Jesus Christ. It's this Godward gratitude through Christ that orients our hearts to carry out all that Paul has set before us in this chapter. So that, I would argue, is our twofold battle strategy, letting the Word of Christ dwell among us and giving thanks to God the Father and doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. But I wonder if, briefly before we close, 
If giving thanks is not just about a holiday or a polite response, but is part of our battle strategy to live out our union with Christ, if it's integral to how we are to follow our Lord Jesus, can we take just a minute to examine our hearts and see how we're doing with a heart of thankfulness? Jerry Bridges argues that most of us as Christians have a fairly casual response to the sins of discontentment, grumbling, and unthankfulness. And he writes that those three are related to one another, but uh, they are slightly distinct as well. Discontentment is the attitude of, of um, not being happy with the way things are, thinking that we really hoped for something else, and so we are disappointed that God has given us what He has. It's a discontentment. Uh, grumbling is the act of complaining or whining or grumbling about what has come. And unthankfulness is not giving thanks. Think, think the ten lepers who were healed by Jesus. One of them gave thanks and nine of them were unthankful, right? The lack of giving thanks. And Bridges says, just think about all of the times we grumble. Think about all the scenarios in life in which our hearts aren't happy with the way things are, and we express it. Or even if we don't express it, we're feeling it. John Piper wrote, we aren't just supposed to give thanks, we are supposed to feel thanks, because God is not happy with those who honor Him with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him, right? So how often do our hearts and our lips feel and express discontentment, grumbling, and unthankfulness? Now, I would guess that we know we're not supposed to be really angry or bitter, but I would guess that we might even think that discontentment or a little bit of frustration and grumbling makes sense or maybe is even the normal and natural response to things. But would you consider how God treats grumbling and discontentment and unthankfulness? And let me give you just two examples Think Israel in the wilderness when it says that they grumbled against the Lord. Israel didn't come out with flaming arrows and and flashing swords and say, we're going to overthrow God. They grumbled. And they said, why do we have to eat this manna? Couldn't we have cucumbers and leeks and, you know, the, the food of the Egyptians? They grumbled. And what was the result? God punished them swiftly and severely and said that their grumbling was an act of rebellion against him. How about the New Testament? Romans chapter 1. If you know Romans chapter 1, this is a chapter that we think of as perhaps the greatest description of the descent of mankind into abomination. Some of the the sins that are most starkly opposed to God. And Romans 1 talks about that descent into sin. But where did it start? Where did that descent into sin start? Well, Romans 1, we read this. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Not honoring God and not giving thanks to God were the first step that led them to being futile in their thinking and having foolish hearts that were darkened. 
That's pretty significant, isn't it? And so failing to give thanks to God, which keeps our eyes on ourselves in this world rather than on Him, actually sets us up to forget Him or turn on Him. And God Himself considers discontentment, grumbling, and unthankfulness to be rebellion against Him. This is serious stuff. Jerry Bridges warns us this way. He says, whatever situation tempts us to be discontent, we need to recognize that discontentment is sin. And that statement alone may surprise many. We're so used to responding to difficult circumstances with anxiety or frustration or discontentment, and sometimes it's not even difficult circumstances. It's just the ones we didn't want right now. But when we fail to recognize those as sins... We are responding no differently from unbelievers who never factor God into their situations. Now, this is challenging, isn't it? My hope, my hope is that we might take God's perspective on grumbling and unthankfulness and discontentment. And we might consider how that drives us into ourselves and might remember then thanksgiving as the thing that turns us off of ourselves and back to Him as the counter to this. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, well, that's all well and good, but if I'm supposed to be thankful and I'm not just supposed to act thankful, I'm actually supposed to be thankful, how exactly do I do that in every circumstance? Because 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in every circumstance. And I know how to be genuinely thankful in the good times, and maybe I know that I'm not supposed to be grumbling in the hard times, but can I really be thankful, genuinely, in the midst of suffering and difficulty? Well, Bridges says, yes, we can, and that is Scripture's call to us. He says, we are not just supposed to put a smile on our faces when we're suffering. That, again, would be honoring God with our lips while our hearts we're not. But we do have promises of God in the midst of our suffering. This morning in Matt's sermon, he quoted Romans eight twenty eight, that in all things God is working good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And the question is, do we believe that promise? Because if we believe that promise, it begins to give us a way forward in giving thanks in all circumstances. That even in the midst of suffering, God has promised that in those things, not despite those things, in those things, He is working out our good in His glory for those who belong to Christ and are called according to His purposes. And if that's true, Bridges says this, Giving thanks in a disappointing or difficult situation is to be done by faith in His promises. It is not done by sheer willpower. But if it is done by faith in His promises, we are giving thanks with our lips and our hearts, believing and honestly giving God thanks that even though we might not see how right now, He is at work in our sufferings, even the disappointing, the difficult, and the terrible to draw us to himself, to increase our dependence upon him, and to bring good for us and for his people. 
And so Bridges says, yes, all circumstances for our salvation and our spiritual growth, we give thanks to him. For all material blessings, we give thanks to him. And for all sufferings and anxieties that God has promised to use in our lives, we give thanks to him. And so not because it's Thanksgiving weekend, but because of the spiritual issues at stake, would you examine your hearts and lives for any discontentment or unthankfulness? And as you do so, would you be drawn back to Paul's words here? Thanksgiving is how we set our eyes on Christ. Thanksgiving brings us back to Him. It raises our eyes away from the things of this earth, back to Christ, back to the things above where Christ is. Through thanksgiving, our hearts are reminded of our union with Christ and our fellowship with Him. Through thanksgiving, our lives are continually brought back to joyful obedience to such a Savior who holds us in His hand and is renewing us more and more into His likeness while we wait to be with Him forever. I like the way Pastor Sam Hubbard put it, and I'll close with this. He wrote, Thanksgiving is an act of war. We count our blessings to kill our sins. Thanksgiving sets our eyes on Christ and away from this world. So may gratitude be part of your battle plan as you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for Jesus Christ. He is our all in all. Father, forgive us for our grumbling and our discontentment and wanting things the way we want them and not giving thanks for all that you're doing in our lives. Hold Christ before us. Magnify him before our eyes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.